We're in a series, uh, The Church, A Spiritual Community. We're in the eighth and I think final one of this series. And the subtitle for this message is Not the Church of Your Expectations. And when you came in, if you got a, uh, a bulletin on the inside of that, you'll have a handout which will uh, help you follow along and take most of your notes for you or at least give you a spot for them. So if you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to you this morning, we ask that you would give us your spirit, and by your spirit, that you would open and make known to us the mystery of the gospel, that, that is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Make that known to us, make that plain to us, and help us to understand it. And most importantly, help us to understand what that means for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Revelation chapter 7, if you would, begin reading with me. We're going to begin in verse number 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. From the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. From the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked and... Behold, and you might want to insert the word behold if you have the NIV because they kind of left it out, but there it is. And behold, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You might add by implication and to no other God. (laughs) Salvation belongs to our God, for every nation of the earth, every tribe, language, and people, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. You've probably seen the Buick advertising campaign, one of the commercials anyway. Is that a Buick? Which also includes the tagline, that's not a Buick. That's not a Buick. Is that a Buick? The idea that they're communicating is that the Buick of today is not the Buick of your expectations. It has been radically changed or altered. And apparently sales are up. One day, When we are gathered around the throne of God and the church of our Lord Jesus Christ from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue, from all the ages of of time are gathered around that throne, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ will not look like the church of your expectations. Now, I don't know what your expectations are, and I really don't need to, to know that that's still true. Because I can assure you that if the church will not look like what John the Apostle thought it would be, it will not be what you or I thought it would be either. And I'll show you that it will not look like what John thought it would be. Make that case. In Revelation 5, John was weeping. And he heard a description of why he no longer needed to weep. An angel spoke to him and said, Do not weep. In 5.5, See, or behold, 
The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John, being Jewish, was familiar with this image of the lion of the tribe of Judah. That was a familiar story to him. He he understood that there was a coming Messiah, described as the lion of the tribe of Judah, who would conquer the enemies of Israel and deliver them from those who oppressed them. And so John hears something, and what does he hear? He's, he, he says, look and see. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. So what does he expect to see when he turns? Well, he would expect to see a lion, maybe with a lamb chop in his mouth, a little blood dripping off the side of it, who just conquered. And then we see in verse number 6 that what he turned to see was Something really opposite of that. Verse 6. Then I saw. So he hears. Behold. So he's going to obey. He said, they said, look. And I'm going to look and see this lion of the tribe. So he looks and he sees. What does he see? Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. A lion who's triumphed. A lion with lamb chop in mouth, blood dripping off the end. No. I look and I see lamb slain. I see the lamb chop standing at the center of the throne. I thought I was supposed to see the lion. I see the lamb. Of course, John, in his gospel, already has told us that the glory of the Messiah is found on the cross. And so he's already begun to understand that this is very upside down. In Revelation 7, John has a similar experience that we just read of. Chapter 6 closes with the expectation of God's wrath is going to be poured out on the earth, so much so that people are crying out that the rocks would fall on them and hide them from the wrath of God. I don't know about you, most people I know aren't asking for rocks to fall on them. That's painful. But if you ever wonder how bad the wrath of God is, which should give you some idea if you'd prefer rocks to fall on you to hide you from the wrath of God. Not a good scene. But pause that. Four angels in chapter 7, verse 1, are holding back the winds of God's wrath, the winds that will blow in the storm of God's wrath. Four angels are holding it back from blowing on the earth until the servants of God are sealed. Those sealed are to be spared from God's wrath. Nothing can separate them from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Then John hears. So, he hears something. This is going to be a similar progression that we saw in chapter 5. He heard, then he saw. He heard, then he saw. Watch here. He hears and sees. Then John hears. Here it is again. He hears 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And that's a significant number. 144,000, that's 12 squared. 144. 12 times 12, that's the 12 tribes of Israel. That's the number of governance in, in, Israel, in Jewish thinking. And 12 times 12, I think it's the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. You multiply them together, that creates an entirely new thing. And that new thing is this Israel that he's looking at. And it's from all the tribes of Israel, not just the two southern tribes, the Jews, but now including the ten lost tribes that have been scattered to the ends of the earth and to who knows where that nobody had ever knew where they were. At that time, they didn't really exist anymore. And yet God promised that he would regather them from the nations and bring them together. And here they are, completed, perfect in every way. That's what he heard. Then John looks. And behold. (laughs) After this, I looked, verse 9. And behold. There was before me a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. What John heard set his expectations. What John saw turned them upside down. That's not a Buick. that's, That's not Israel. He heard, that's Israel. He saw, that's not Israel. But what he saw was, in fact, Israel, redefined through Jesus Christ. Redefined through Jesus Christ. If you were a Jew, like John was, prior to his this vision on the Isle of Patmos, your expectations of the remnant of God's people having the kingdom restored to them with the wrath of God 
coming upon the kings and peoples of the, that oppress them. If, if you were a Jew with those expectations, you had expectations that looked more like what John heard and nothing like what John saw. Your expectations were like that description of Israel in the 144,000, a perfectly complete nation regathered by God that was perfect in every way. But what John saw looked radically different than that, and it would have turned your expectations upside down. If you had heard the promises passed down from, from the law and the prophets of what it would look like for God to restore His people and regather them from the nations, what you heard promised one expect, or painted one expectation, and when we, what we will see at the end of the age, when God is finished, will not look like what we expected it to be at all. And I will suggest today that even all of us who know those truths will still be surprised at exactly what God is doing. And I'll make my case. The church, the people of God, made up from people from every nation, all tribes, people, groups, and every language, is a community in which racial, ethnic, social, economic barriers have been destroyed. It is a community in which our fellowship with people radically different than us, is not only possible, but required. Not only possible, but required. The work of God in salvation will be complete only when peoples from every nation, tribe, language, and tongue are joined together as one people of God. So, I'm going to talk about this and kind of walk through the rest of the Bible under three headings today about this. One, Christ's work in salvation fulfills the promise to Abraham. Christ's work in salvation, that's what they all start with, fulfills the promise to Abraham. Secondly, Christ's work in salvation breaks down every barrier to unity. And thirdly, Christ's work in salvation demands a shared life, a shared table, if you will, despite our differences. So let's begin under the heading, Christ's work in salvation fulfills the promise to Abraham. In, in Genesis 12, and I say Abraham, technically at the time it was given, it was Abram. Okay, so either way. But in Genesis 12, God makes a promise to Abram. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God makes this promise to Abram that all peoples on earth will be blessed through him. But the expectation that they had, I will make you into a great nation, and then all peoples will be blessed through you. The expectation that most Jews had, and I suppose Abraham may have had, is that what it would look like was probably more like the nation of Israel exalted and kind of running the world and every other nation in submission to them. And they would have to come under the rules and regulations of, of, of Israel, if you will. What they thought that the fulfillment of this promise would look like was definitely not Revelation 7, verse 9. This innumerable multitude from every nation, uh, tribe, and tongue. If you hear Genesis 12, 2, and 3, you would likely not expect Revelation 7, 9. However, looking back through the lens of Revelation 7, you can see that it is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave Abraham in Genesis 12, 2, and 3. Revelation shows us what the fulfillment of the promise looks like in Christ, the Lamb. Not only the promise to Abraham, but the law. We see it there in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 and 6. And we we looked at this verse in the first message in this series because it's connected to 1 Peter 2, 9 that says we're a royal priesthood and a holy nation, which is drawn from Exodus 19. The people of God had just arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, having just been brought out of Egypt, short trip to, to, to Mount Sinai, and they're about to receive the law. So, in effect, you could call these verses the preamble to the law. The phrase, uh, let's read verse 5. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This, This phrase, 
the whole earth is mine. Really, it parallels the previous phrase and the previous clause, uh, then out of all nations. The, although the whole earth is mine, it, it doesn't mean although the, all the dirt and the clay and the rocks and the water, although that's mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying, although every people on earth, every nation on earth is mine, you will be unique among them because you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, you will be people who will mediate my revelation to the world. You will mediate my revelation to the world, and you are set apart, devoted, holy, for my purposes of reaching them. By choosing Israel, God was not relinquishing his ownership of the rest of the peoples on earth. Rather, he was choosing Israel that they might mediate his revelation to the nations of the world, and ultimately through Christ they did, because Christ is the ultimate revelation of God. To be Christ's witnesses, which is what the church is called to do, is effectively the same thing. By the way, Israel was called to be his witnesses as well. To be Christ's witnesses is to mediate his revelation to the world, to mediate, to be a, between God and the world. We communicate that message. We stand between. That's what a priest does. They stand between God and others. Well, we as a people, Israel as a people, we're called to stand between God and every other nation, to communicate God to the other nations. And that's what we are called to do. Salvation will be complete only when the revelation of God in Jesus Christ is mediated to the world through the church and all nations and peoples become a part of God's glorious people. Salvation will be complete in Revelation 7, 9. That is what it means to be a kingdom of priests and set apart for God's purposes. And a holy nation is to aim for that. To aim for Revelation 7, 9. So Christ's work in salvation fulfills the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12, 2 and 3. Secondly, Christ's work in salvation breaks down every barrier to unity. Breaks down every barrier to unity. Last week, we, we spoke from the book of Colossians, chapter 3, and looked at how we are called to put off the pattern of living that divides us from one another. How our unity grows out of what Christ has made us to be. There, Colossians 3, speaking of how, we're going, how we are to clothe ourselves with this restored brand new person that we are in Christ. In verse 11, Paul describes who this brand new person is. Here, in the restored brand new person that verse 10 was talking about, here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. The gospel eliminates racial and cultural barriers. Gentile and Jew. Here there is no Gentile or Jew. In other words, they're, they're talk, spoken of in the next phrase. It's just another way to, to say it. Circumcised and uncircumcised. For Jews at that time, there were two kinds of people in the world. Jews and everybody else, right? And that's just how they viewed the world. But then he goes on to list, because his audience isn't just Jews, his audience is the Gentiles as well. So he goes on to talk about other groups. Barbarians. Barbarians were those who were not only Gentiles, but even the Gentiles of the Hellenistic world at Paul's time, the, the, the Roman Empire, would have considered these barbarians uncivilized. So it's not just like Jews and everybody else, but the everybody else, Paul's basically saying, oh, and by the way, it doesn't even matter if they're a barbarian. Meaning, those uncultured people that have no civilization as far as you're concerned. Not even that makes a difference. In Christ, that's been done away with. You're one in Christ. But then he adds Scythians. Have you guys seen any Scythians lately? I don't know if you've met any Scythians. I saw some at the park the other day. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <clears throat> I don't know what a Scythian is personally from experience, but they were, at that time, the bottom rung of the ladder, if you will, the bottom of the barrel, socially. Even Romans considered them pagans, which is interesting. When a pagan thinks you're a pagan, I mean, you're really a pagan, right? I, barbarians, which were the uncultured people of the day, would have turned their noses up at Scythians. I mean, just to, if, if this were India, and we're talking about India, we'd be talking, th these would be the untouchables. 
the, the very bottom of, of the system. The gospel eliminates racial and cultural barriers, but it also eliminates socioeconomic barriers. Notice, slave or free, rich, poor. That's an economic issue, slave or free. The gospel eliminates that because Christ is all and is in all. In other words, in Christ, for all who believe in Christ, when I look at you and when you look at me, I don't see rich or poor. I don't see black or white. What do I see? I see Christ in you. That changes everything because if you're Christ and I'm Christ, we're one. And I don't mean I'm Christ in the sense that I'm Jesus, but if he's in you and if he's in me, and we see that in each other, we are one. Now, this theme that I'm speaking of is not played in a minor key in the New Testament. It's a major key. Not only is it a major theme in Luke's gospel, but it pops its head up nearly everywhere, if not everywhere. It certainly, I would would argue, potentially could find it in every New Testament letter. If not every, certainly nearly every. If I didn't quite succeed in every, those are really short ones. I I may have a hard time making my case solidly, but... And in and, and the book of Acts, it's huge in the book of Acts. And so if Luther, in his sometimes crass way of putting things, which he had, if he was right about the need to pound justification by grace into the heads of the saints, then it is also true that these issues need to be pounded into the heads of the saints. Because frankly, we, much as we think we get it, I don't think we do. And I'll illustrate that today. So we've looked at this in Colossians. I want to look at Galatians and then Ephesians briefly. Under this point, Galatians, speaking of how baptism into Christ changes everything about who we are. Paul writes this in chapter 3, verse 26 of Galatians. So in Christ Jesus, you who you are all children of God through faith for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. What do I look at? What do I see when I look at you? Mostly clothing, hopefully. Right. Otherwise, you're dressed immodestly. Right. So we mostly clothing. So if we're clothed in Christ, what do I see when I look at you? I see Christ. I see your personality. I see your culture. I'll see a lot of other things about you. But ultimately, I should see Christ. Amen? So then notice what he says. There, verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. There's neither male nor female. So now, even the, 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 the gender barriers that we think of has been done away with. And you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. See, this truth about what Christ has done to make us one is how the expectation of a perfectly complete, very kosher expectation of a regathered Israel, that, I mean, that, that, that description in uh, verses 4 through 8 in Revelation 7 of 12, 144,000, 12,000. That's about as kosher a group as you can ever imagine seeing, isn't it? And yet the other group that I turned and saw is about as unkosher as you could ever imagine seeing. And that expectation of a very kosher group, perfectly complete, This, what Christ has done in making us one, this is how it is transformed into the reality of an innumerable multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language that John saw in Revelation 7, verse 9. Christ's death and resurrection changes everything. Christ's death and resurrection changes everything. If you believe in Christ, raised from the dead, ruling at the right hand of God as Lord of heaven and earth, and profess Him as Lord, you are one with each other. Whatever else you used to be, no matter, you are one in Christ. The gospel did that. To say otherwise is to deny the gospel, as we'll see in a moment. That's not only in Colossians and Galatians, it's a primary theme in Ephesians. These are three of Paul's major letters, and I can find it in his other ones, but we're just going to look at these three briefly. Ephesians 3, verse 6. Paul writes, this this mystery is that, through the gospel, the Gentiles are 
heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. Paul describes this mystery in verses 2 and 3 as the grace God had given him by revelation to make known to others. So this mystery is the truth that he's responsible for stewarding. What is this mystery? That Gentiles, in other words, non-Jews, the uncircumcised, the religiously uncultured, those who eat ham sandwiches and celebrate different holidays, those whose meat markets are not only not kosher, but sell meat that last night was an idol sacrifice. That those people, through faith in Jesus, are heirs together with Israel of the promise given to Abraham. Now, I'm going to say that again because that may be the most important thing I say this morning. That, that, that Paul thought it was one of the, the core of his very ministry. It's radical. It has radical implications, which we'll talk about in a moment. But let me say it again. That Gentile, this is the mystery, that Gentiles, non-Jews, the uncircumcised, through faith in Jesus are heirs together with Israel of the promise given to Abraham. To say it more expanded, that Gentiles, non-Jews, the uncircumcised, the religiously uneducated, if you will, those who eat ham sandwiches and celebrate different holidays, those whose meat markets are not only not kosher, but sell uh, meat that was offered in sacrifice last night to an idol, that those people, through faith in Jesus, are heirs together with Israel of the promise given to Abraham. In fact, they're members of one body. The English phrase, members of one body, captures what was one Greek word. In fact, that this word is only known to have been used once ever, which is, of course, right here. Paul may have coined it. They're not aware of anywhere else it was ever used, so they they think Paul coined it. It wouldn't have been hard, and people would have immediately recognized what it meant because he took a common prefix and jammed it onto the front of a common word. And so everybody would immediately recognize, we do that with words oftentimes, it's called coining a a phrase or a word, and and that's what he did here. And and the the prefix was was the the prefix that would mean together or in union or with or, or with, and he put that right on the front of the word body. So... And union body, a together body. He, he, he was so expressing the fact that we are one body, that, that we are joined together in one body, that he created, presumably, possibly, one word to express it. He certainly used one word to express it. And I think he wanted to do that because he just wanted to demonstrate how one we are. Now let's back up briefly. Uh, to see what else Paul says. Chapter 2 of Ephesians. I'm only going to look at 11 through 16 this morning, but verse 11. Therefore. Now, the therefore of verse 11 follows the description of our being saved by grace in verses 1 through 10. So everything in verses 11 through 16 is in effect of the salvation that belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Therefore. Remember that formerly, you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Verse 12, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, therefore excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you, who were once far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of two. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. When we were separate from Christ, we were excluded from citizenship in Israel. Now that we are no longer separate from Christ, we are included in citizenship in Israel. 
That's pretty straightforward, and that's the plain meaning of the text. Verse 14. How did Christ Jesus make the two groups one? He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. That's how he did it. How did he destroy the barrier that divided, the the dividing wall of hostility? How did he destroy that? Verse 15. By setting aside the law. In other words, by invalidating it, by rendering it powerless against us. Ultimately, by nailing it to the cross. Listen, listen. I want you to get this. If you get anything else today, get this. If unity in the church between differing kinds of peoples, Jew and Gentile, civilized and uncivilized, religious, non-religious sorts of culture backgrounds, male and female, rich and poor. If, if unity in the church between different kinds of people was so important to God that Jesus Christ did away with the law's power over our lives in order to accomplish that unity, is there any other obstacle to our unity that should stand? I mean, if you can come up with any other obstacle that's more important than the law that God gave on Mount Sinai to Moses and delivered directly to his people that way, if you can think of anything more important than that, then you have found a reason we should stay divided. But if God is willing to obliterate the meaning of the law for our lives in order that we might be joined, then really, nothing else, this is an argument from the greater to the lesser, nothing else should stand in the way. Darren and I often have this conversation because there are times in reading Paul that one can become very uncomfortable with how he speaks about the law and it being done away with. I mean, honestly, if you're just honest with the text, right, you just look at it, you're like, that's awkward. I mean, what do you do with that? And so we have this ongoing conversation. We've had it for, what, 10 years? This ongoing conversation about this, and we're kind of exploring it. And it should be awkward, but it drives to this point. It, it makes this point for us. And the point is, if God was willing to do that to the law, the very holy, perfect, and good law that he spent so much time delineating to his people, if he's willing to obliterate its power in order to achieve unity, then is there anything else that should stand between us and any other brother or sister in Christ and our unity? And the answer is an emphatic no, there is nothing else. Amen? I mean, you might say, well, what about doctrinal differences? Do they belong to Jesus Christ? If the answer to that is yes, then obliterate the doctrinal differences. It's not big enough. I mean, let's be honest here. Would not the law constitute a doctrinal difference? That's kind of a big one. It's kind of like the entire doctrine of the Jewish people. The law. So, yes. Belonging to Christ is the, the, the only thing that, that, that matters. That, that is it. He's raised from the dead, seated at the right hand of God, and he is my Lord, and I profess him before people. That, that is it. And then, yeah, that doesn't mean I don't hold doctrinal differences with people. I do hold them, and I'll even discuss them with them, and I'll even debate them with them. But we are united. We belong to one another. We share life together. We love one another. Well, There is a quote there by Andrew Walls. I'm going to let you read that in your own time. Don't read it now. I've got a sermon to preach. Christ's work in salvation breaks down every barrier to unity. Thirdly, Christ's work in salvation demands a shared life. A shared table, if you will. Despite our differences. It demands it. We're going to look at Galatians 2 in particular for this one. Hone in there. Any who have read through Paul's letters at some point in the New Testament might recall this text because it's rather perplexing for most of us. Many are left wondering, you know, yeah, I I know Peter was known to step in it from time to time, but I mean, like, this takes the cake. I mean, here you've kind of got this picture painted of Paul rebuking Peter in front of everybody in the church, like to his face. And you kind of wonder, is like Paul a hard head or what's the deal here? This is the Apostle Peter. How how, how could he be this far off? Well, let's read what the real case is here. Chapter 2, verse 11 of Galatians. When Cephas, by the way, Cephas is just the Aramaic word for Peter. So when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face 
because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in front of them all, you are a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it, then, that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? 2017, this year, is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation. The anniversary of when Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the church in Wittenberg, or at least mailed them to the Archbishop of Mainz on October 31st of that year. Both Galatians and Romans have been front and center in church theology for Protestants ever since. And that's been good. As good as that has been, it has also caused some confusion over the point of the letter to the Galatians, I might suggest. I certainly don't claim to have sorted out all the confusion, but I think I can at least identify the source of some of it. Since the issue that was at stake in Luther's day was soteriological. In other words, it was, it was about how we are saved. That was the issue. How are we saved? Works or grace? Protestants tend to read the entire letter to the Galatians as if it, was the, it, it is only focused on how we are saved. In our minds, that mostly means when we say how we are saved, we're mostly talking about how we go to heaven. And so it's kind of taken this letter and made it all about Which way do we end up going to heaven? Now, I would make the case that that while there is much um, in Galatians that speaks of how we are saved, the primary problem that Paul is addressing is not about beliefs as much as it is about practice. We get to this text and we see this thing with Peter and Paul and we tend to think that that somehow Peter had begun to believe that we got saved some different way and how could he be so stupid and the Galatians were foolish because they believed we could get saved some other way. I'm not really persuaded that's what the letter is about. We can say it another way. This, This letter is more about ecclesiology than soteriology. In other words, it's more about what the gospel says about the church and the family of God than it is about what it says about how we are saved. Now, the Galatians says plenty about how we are saved, don't get me wrong. But when it does, it does so in order to address not a problem of beliefs as much as a problem of how the Galatians were treating one another. Later, he says, don't use your liberty you know, to, to be enslaved again, but serve one another in love. And so doing, you fulfill the law. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that, that's the driving point that he's really getting at. What, what Paul says or was saying to, to Peter in calling him a hypocrite is not that he was, or it's not that he didn't believe the gospel, but that he's not living in line with the gospel that he professes to believe. So let's follow Paul's argument briefly. In chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, Paul speaks of his previous way of life and how he was advancing in Judaism and, quote, Verse 14, end of verse 14, extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But that line is followed by, but when God. Last week when Jordan shared her testimony, she came to one point where she had been describing her, her um, life and how she ended up in this, I think, in a place of rebellion and, and troubled. And she said, but God, right? But God. That's the turning point. Well, here's the turning point. I was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father, but when God. When God, who set Paul apart from his mother's womb and called him by his grace, was pleased to reveal Jesus in him in order that he might proclaim Jesus among the Gentiles. See, see, once God chose him for that mission, no longer could Paul be zealous for his own traditions while among the Gentiles. Rather, Paul must now consider that a loss 
in order to preach in a culture that could not have cared less about Paul's traditions. The Gentiles that he was preaching to didn't really care about Jewish traditions. And they weren't interested in learning them. But Christ mattered to them. So for Paul among the Gentiles, as he's telling them that you are now citizens in the nation of Israel, is that a Buick? Becomes, is that a citizen in the kingdom of Israel? Or, to borrow from an older advertising campaign by GM, it's not your father's Oldsmobile, which evidently was not nearly as successful because they're now gone. But it's, it's not your father's Oldsmobile. See, Paul had to look at the Gentiles, who he now said are joint members of the, the kingdom, the, the citizenship in Israel. He now looks at them and thinks to himself, this is not my father's Israel. Mm-mm. But boy, it is Israel in Christ Jesus. Because all this other stuff's been done away with. In Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, Paul continues to talk about how he shared with those in Jerusalem the very gospel that he preached to the Gentiles. And he says that even when we were in Jerusalem, telling them what we're preaching to the Gentiles, which clearly Ephesians 2 and 3 tell us about, we, we looked at earlier. But even then, not even Titus the Greek was compelled to join in Jewish law tradition by being circumcised. And apparently at that point, everybody was all good with that. So why suddenly does Peter have a different opinion when he arrives in Antioch? So we arrive in chapter 2, verse 11, and Cephas, or Peter, has now come to Antioch. And initially, he has no problem forgetting about his Jewish traditions and eating with Gentiles at a table that probably has ham at one end. And meat that's been sacrificed the night before to an idol that they got in the meat market. But Peter's not objecting to it then. I'll sit down and eat with him. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. No problem. Peter himself argued for that back in Acts chapter 10 and 11. But suddenly, when others show up from Jerusalem, he draws back and separates himself because he's concerned with what others might think. That is why Paul says he was not acting in line with the gospel. See, that is what the gospel is supposed to create. This kind of broken down barriers that allows us to eat at the same table because Christ has indeed made us one. No matter what our racial, ethnic, gender, or socioeconomic differences are, we are to eat together and therefore share life together. I mean, if you're willing to eat together in the Jewish mind, you're willing to share all of life together because that table was a place that was holy and it separated us from them. We don't eat the same, so we don't eat at the same table. Therefore, we don't share life together. If we've broken it down to the level that we share the same table, then we've broken it down definitely to the level that we share all of life. That's how they would have thought of that. We're to share life together. Because we are one, we are family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. That's why Paul says he was acting out of line with the gospel when he backed off of that in his behavior. Rather than being aghast at how Peter could possibly not understand the gospel of grace, the real application of this text about Peter is for us to ask questions like this. Am I sitting down at the table with brothers and sisters in Christ regardless of racial, ethnic, or socioeconomic factors? Or... Would I be too concerned about what others would think if I went out of my way to demonstrate that my poor or culturally different or racially different brothers and sisters in Christ and myself are not two but one? Or am I willing to become uncomfortable as Peter was initially and as Paul was most of the time? By spending my life with people not like me. Am I willing to do that? To become uncomfortable with those that I'm now one with in Christ. And spend my life together, to to, to share life together with them. That's the proper application of a large portion of the book of Galatians. And when we miss that, we may be swallowing a different gospel, no matter how orthodox our our profession is. 
Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, this came home to me. I don't know that I realized it fully at the time, but I do now. For the last six or seven years, I I think I got an invitation by accident or something. I, I had this invitation in my email to a prayer meeting of pastors uh, that are on the south side of St. Petersburg um, to, to gather for prayer at 7 o'clock on a Saturday morning. At first, I, I was about to click delete when I thought, 7 on a Saturday, I'm preparing sermons by then. It's just, I can't do that. And then I thought, yeah, that's a lousy excuse. I need to go. And so I showed up six or seven years ago. I don't five, I don't know. It was a long time ago. And I can, I, I can remember... Honestly, the first time I'm thinking to myself, yeah, this is really uncomfortable. I honestly had nothing to do with the fact that they were black. There, there was all black pastors except one. She was a white woman. And the rest were black uh, men and women that were pastors. And then there's me. And, and um, so, so that wasn't the issue. It, it was the, the, the way they did prayer. They're, they were culturally rather different than... If, if we have a prayer meeting and they have a prayer meeting, they would look really different, okay? Um, I'm not saying which is right. I'm just saying they would look so different that I, that, that I was a little uncomfortable. But I, you know what? Hey, I'm here to learn to love my brother. And, and then over time, over months, uh, uh, we really grew to love them and to know them and to spend time with them. And it was, it was sweet. And then came the opportunity to join the first National Day of Prayer there with them. And invite our church to go. And I had a Peter experience. A Peter experience of Galatians chapter 2. Where I suddenly began to feel awkwardly uncomfortable with inviting all of you. And wondering what would they think of how crazy their pastor is when they get there. And this is their experience. Yeah. And I almost backed away from the table. I, instead, I gave a kind of half-hearted, sheepish sort of invitation to go, which is a little better than back away from the table, but not by much. <laughs> but over the years, I've, I've, I've labored to overcome that. Not, I'm not fully overcome it. I'm not saying I, I have. But I recognize it. And I have to do battle with it. And again, it, it was about how I would be perceived. It was hypocrisy, the same hypocrisy that Peter was involved in right here. That is what this text is about. Christ's work not only makes unity possible by breaking down every barrier to unity, it demands it. It not only makes unity possible, it demands it. For to do otherwise is to live contrary to the gospel. Just a few thoughts in closing, and I know I've gone over, but... Our country is at a place where despite historic progress for both legitimate and not-so-legitimate reasons, racial tension is ginned up in our nation right now. The Sunday after the election, many pastors with mixed-race churches actually had visible conflict in their churches. That, that, that reveals deep problems of hypocrisy. We don't know one another because we don't eat together. We don't share life together. If, if our fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ of different political persuasions was affected whether in real life or on Facebook, by the election, were every bit as much hypocrites as Peter was. And listen, the church must lead the way here because nobody else can. Nobody else has what will work. Only the church has it. The church has an opportunity to be a kingdom of priests, mediating God's revelation that is revealed in Jesus Christ to the world around us by how the church, those who belong to Jesus, see themselves as more one than, and, and, and have eliminated all these other barriers. And we come together and we share life together. This will only happen when we start understanding just how serious Jesus is about eating at the same table with people very much not like us. 
economic relations in the church in America, the, the same truth applies to those on completely different economic levels. Will you eat with poor Christians? Will you invite them into your home? See, let's not claim to be all about the gospel. I'm all about the gospel. Well, if we're not doing this, we're not all about the gospel. We're just not. We may think we are, but we so deceive ourselves. How does this affect my conversation about illegal immigration? Because, by the way, if it doesn't affect your conversation about immigration, then you're living a life disjointed from the gospel in that area. It's got to affect it. So, well, how should that affect it? Well, try this. Try getting to know somebody that's a brother or sister in Christ and spending time with them and laboring with them. And suddenly, maybe two years into the relationship, for the first time you discover, oh, I'm here illegally. Then what? Do you call and report them? Is that what, is that what you do? If so... Pontius, do you want me to give you a bowl of water so you can wash your hands at the same time? I, I would say that's not the right response. We're one in Christ. <laughs> Happened to me. The very thing I just described, only to discover that the reason he was here illegally is because had he gone back, his life was in danger, would be threatened, would be killed. Well, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm, you need to go back. Yeah, that's great. See, there's an issue. The, the, the American church has developed homogeneously. We, we have this sameness about us. We plant churches in neighborhoods to draw people like that. We, we plant churches that oh, we want to have a church that's going to really reach the millennials. Really? What about the older people? Oh, we want to have a church that's for the baby boomers. That's where all the money is. Well, what about the millennials? What, what about the seniors? What about the young? We are not to plant churches to draw a single kind of person, black or white, socioeconomic barriers, styles, differences. The church is not to be built around styles. It's not to be built around differences. Yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna have this. We're going to have that. No, we're one in Christ Jesus. We're going to focus on families. Well, how do the singles feel? We need to build for all. We're not all to be the same. That's what I love about community groups. It puts us with people not like us. Now, that's assuming, of course, that when you pick a group, you actually pick a group looking at times, maybe for somebody who's very much not like you to be in the group. Maybe some that are like you and plenty that are not like you. If we're only gathering around people that are like us, maybe we're missing the point. Community groups are a table. We eat there together. We share life together. We together can look and find new tables, new ways to reach out and invite others to eat at the table with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, make these things so by your Spirit in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.